Are, are we having another grandbaby? <laughs> okay. What is it? All right. I'm going to cry. Just a second. <laughs> okay. Was I talking about something? Is that, is that really what that is? Did you know that? Is that why? <laughs> well, it's about time. That's what I've been thinking. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Okay. Yeah, I don't ever look at the screens. I don't know what's on there. That's my granddaughter, by the way. She's pretty, isn't she? Okay. I was talking about stuff. Oh, yeah. I was seeing if everybody overate for Thanksgiving. That's what happens, right? Oh, so here's, here's what Lynn and I did. So here's what Lynn and I did. Uh, took two briskets, cooked them Brazilian style, one with like a, um, a, a basil, one with like a garlic based, and then smoked salmon. So all you turkey eaters, <laughs> you have your turkey. You can have all the turkey you want to have. I, I did want to mention, <laughs> I did want to mention um, this. So this Saturday coming up, we're going to be having the uh, memorial service for Sharon Cheney. Some of you have been asking what you can do or how you can uh, do that. They, they had a memorial service where her family's from in, in Washington this uh, last week and week before last. And um, and uh, it went well, went nice service. Uh, most, of their, most of her family's from that area. And so this is for us here. This is for the church family. Uh, if you want to do something to be involved with her, you can. Um, we're we're going to be bringing finger foods and things like that. Contact the church office so we kind of know what's going on if you want to jump in and help. And, uh, and all the details, um, you can, you can uh, talk to the office, get online. We're going to send out an email later this week about all this. Um, be praying for Roy, too. This is still obviously very difficult. Um, I, I, I said this, I think, last week, but I can't imagine one day your spouse just not there. And uh, different people in our church have obviously gone through this, and it's just mind-boggling to me how you process that. In fact, I don't know how you would try to do that without, without Jesus. But um, Also, uh, Terry Ustock's father passed away this week. That's, they're gone this weekend. I told him we would have people praying for him um, there, and there with his family there. So, so anytime you think about uh, either, either of those families this week, just pray for them. And pray that the Holy Spirit will, will be with them, give them peace, all the things that are involved with that. So I've been looking at, um, I've been looking at, so I really am having a grandchild or another grand, are you sure about that? That's not like a joke or anything here? Okay, all right, just, did you know this, Isaac? I didn't know, okay, all right. It's not that son, it's my other son, okay. So, he's like, <clears throat> so, um, so I've been looking at what does Jesus look like? Uh, we've been looking at this over the last few weeks, and so now I want to kind of jump into, into this um, now. If you say, what does Jesus look like now? We've looked at the different places in Scripture and the things of this, but what does Jesus look like now? Because what he looks like now is the transcendence of who he is, the, the everything of who he is. And I've, and I've thought about this from a lot of different um, angles, obviously looking at this over the last few weeks, but little things like, what does Je Jesus look like uh, to the angels 
And what does Jesus look like to demons? Let me, let me throw something out for you to think about a little bit. There's a lot of stuff that we get on this earth that are, that are glimpses, that are precursors to the big picture of who God is and who we are in relationship to God and some of these kind of things. And we, and we, don't, um, they, we don't get to see the big picture, but God shows us little things along the way to help us to see the big picture because we're limited. We're limited human beings. And, and even when you think, okay, I know I've seen everything. I understand God totally. I get all this other kind of stuff. Scripture's still true. You're still looking through a cloudy glass. So you're still limited in how much you can see and know about who God is. As human beings, I mean, God is so big, and, and we're, we can only see a little bit of this. But, but here's something. I, I did a wedding yesterday, and I always talk about this when I do weddings, that, um, that, that marriage is one of those windows. It's one of those things, and in fact, I think it's probably the best one we have in, in humanity, that we get to see God through, that we get to, to, we get to look through, we get to look into the spiritual world, and we get to see things. And marriage shows us things about love and, um, you know, uh, um, c- c- complete love, uh, co- covenant, commitment, grace, mercy. You can't be married long at all unless, unless you've got some grace and you've got some mercy and you're extended that grace and mercy. So we get to see those things through that. Well, well I believe that, that um, when I said, okay, what, what are the angels? When the angels look at God, Jesus right now, what do they see? What do the demons see? Because I don't think they're the same thing. I don't think, I don't think Jesus... See, there's this intimacy. When, it, when we talk about intimacy, we, we have this thing in relationships and specifically within marriage where we have intimacy, we have, and that involves physical, relational, emotional intimacy. We have this, this uh, personalness that we have, this, this uh, us, them, and, and, and us only kind of thing. And I believe that Jesus has that relationship with us. I believe marriage is a, is a precursor to these kind of things and that we have a connection and intimacy to Jesus that is unique to us. And that nobody else is going to understand Jesus and see him the exact same way that we do. Okay? So, so when, when Jesus reveals himself to the angels, I believe he reveals himself in a certain way to the angels. And I don't believe he reveals himself to the same way to the demons. I don't think, he, I don't think they're going to see the, the, the same um, you know, love and commitment and those kind of things because they push that away. And so they're seeing a different... Uh, side of Jesus, and, and I believe that it's the same for us, that we see, uh, that we get to see Jesus in, in, in a way that is unique to us, that there is an intimacy involved with us, that we get to see Jesus that way, and only, we're the only ones that sees him that way. And that's why when you have conversations with people about their spiritual walk or things like this, it's difficult to, to really be able to match it up exactly. When, when somebody says, well, how, does, how do you know that the Lord is speaking to you? The best that I can do is tell you how I know he's speaking to me, but it's not going to be the same for you. I don't think it's intended to be the same. I think it's unique for every one of us. And so when we see Jesus and we understand him, we see glimpses, we see in scripture, we see in relationship, we things like that, I think they're very unique. Now, there are some generals, generalities that are, that are for all of us, and we see that in scripture. When it shows us something in scripture, that's for all of us to see. But even the way we understand that and, and apply that into our life and our spirit is still unique to us. And so how, how, what does that look like? How do, how do you see Jesus? How do you see the, his glory and, his, and the essence of who he is? So what I want to look at this morning is not how we see um, Jesus, uh, Son of Man, Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. That's not, those terminologies, it's not necessarily how I want us to see him. What I'm processing for us this morning is 
in John 1 where it says Jesus is the Word. When we're looking at the Word, how do we see Jesus? Now, obviously, I'm not talking about the paper book Word. That is a small sliver of the essence of Jesus as the Word. That's just a part of that, okay? For example, here's an easy way to analyze this. Who Jesus is as the Word is so much bigger than the written words on the page, but that is the, that is the, the, uh, the uh, standard for us. That's the canon for us. That's the foundation for us, and it, and it can't ever go past the Word. But something simple like creation, it says that, that um, on this day God created this. Don't you know that that was much more majestic and big and everything than those few little words can say right there? That the Word spoke this stuff into existence. And, and I don't think it was like, um, you know, I dream of genie and let there be mountains. Pink, you know, and boom, and there was a mountain. I think it was more like this thing grew out. Because we can see, we can see in, in how uh, strata works on, on the earth and things like that, that it came out of the earth. And so when somebody says, well, you can tell that that erupted out of the ground, they, uh, evolutionists like to say, well, that happened over bazillions of years. Well, no, it happened in the spoken word. It happened in one moment of spoken word, and it erupted out of the ground like that. A mountain erupted out of the ground. Did it come from that? Yes, but it was, it was, in, a, it was in a word. It was done in one time, in one moment, in one day. It erupted out of the ground. And so we understand that there are things that we get tiny glimpses of that are really much bigger. So much bigger. So let's go to Matthew chapter 17. We get all through Scripture, we get these, we get these little glimpses of the transcendent Jesus, the transcendent word, the king of all kings. We get these, we get these little glimpses throughout Scripture that, that show us some of this. It's, it's interesting how consistent that they are. And if you, and if you, re, and if you put them all together, which I'm going to do a little bit this morning, it, they, they tie together very well because it's, it's Jesus. It's who he is. So Matthew chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. You understand Jesus was doing this intentionally. What was about to happen, Jesus wanted them to see. He wanted them to visually see this, this transformation thing that happens here. He wanted them to see it, so he takes them specifically. As the men watched Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. I love the fact that not only did he let them see this, but they immediately recognized that it was Moses and Elijah. How would they know? They didn't, they didn't have snapshots of Moses and Elijah. How would they know? Because the, the Holy Spirit was showing them this. They, they were seeing. They were seeing into the transcendent. They were seeing past time and space into the eternal, past this limitedness of one direction linear time that, that God has created for us. They saw past that. Now, I... Um, I've said this before. I don't. I have to. I have to qualify this so that people don't get confused. I think the greatest thing that will ever happen to us on this earth, the greatest miracle that will ever happen to us and for us, will be the crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross. I think that that sets the stage for us to be made right with God. We we can be forgiven. We have access into eternity with the Lord. All these different kind of things. But but I don't believe that's the greatest supernatural thing that the Lord that Jesus does. I think the the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh, is the biggest thing that Jesus does. I think that's the most miraculous thing. But I think we have to get past 
uh, our, our physicalness on this earth and get into eternity and see the real Jesus in eternity in, in all of his glory and grandeur for us to understand the significance of the incarnation. The, 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 the amazingness. God, this is God that suspends his deity. Now, he's still God while he's in human flesh, but he temporarily suspends operating and acting as deity. He temporarily suspends that. And in fact, it says that after he after he's resurrected, uh, he takes his blood and puts it on the mercy seat and takes back his deity and, and, and buys us with his blood. That, that The mercy seat would be like the bartering table at that moment for us, for our souls, for our lives. But, but God, Jesus, suspends this deity, the grandeur of who he is, that he is bigger than all of creation, all of the universe, everything out there. He's bigger. He was before it. He'll be long after there is anything un- understood gone. And he, he, the glory of who he is, he, he squeezes us down into a little physical human body. And then he lives in this body for 30 years. And then he takes Peter, James, and John up onto this mountain. And he, he starts talking, he starts interacting with God, he begins to glow. And all. To, to me, it's kind of like, you know, like those uh, sci-fi movies where their skin splits open and they start coming out. That, that com- to me, that's kind of what this is. Now think about it from Jesus' point of view. You've been, for 30 years, you've been on this tiny little planet, on this, in this tiny little physical body, and for, for just a few seconds, you get to spread your wings, glory-wise. Don't you think that felt good to him? Don't you think there was something bigger than just that moment? And that, that he got to, to kind of step back in for at least a little bit, step back into a little bit of the, the deity of who he is. And he lets Peter, James, and John see it. He lets them watch this, this, this transformation, this transfiguration. He lets them watch this. And then Moses and Elijah come up and just start talking and hanging out. And it doesn't appear that they're like saying important things or whatever, you know, like strategic or whatever. I think, and, and I don't know this, but I think they were just worshiping him, just confirming to him, you're doing good, stay on track. You're, you're still the king. And he gets to kind of kingify right there just for a second. Just for a second. And Peter, James, and John get to see this. And, and, and I believe it was very intentional that they could see it. The same thing. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Same kind of intentionality we see going on here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 23. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. What do you think that looked like at that moment? See, see, Jesus could have just revealed himself to, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar can see him too. And he, and he makes sure that he can see him in such a way that he recognized. You didn't have to tell Nebuchadnezzar this was God. He got it. He, already, he saw it. He, something about what he saw at that moment made him realize this is God. Now, I've been showing pictures through this whole thing. And the reason is because um, pictures give us an encapsulated view of how humanity saw it at that time. And again, this is very important too. It actually sets the stage for how we look at things for a long time to come. We don't think about that 
but art, visual, uh, those... Um, if, if, if you try to think to yourself what King David looks like, you're going to think of the statue of King David, right? That what's-his-face did, right? Uh, because why? That sets the stage for how we look at it for literally for generations to come. And so I got a picture. Is Jesus with the disciples. It's interesting he's taller than them. I mean, not disciples. You know who they are, the boys. Jesus, why, why, would he, why would the artist make Jesus taller? They're trying to bring authority and all this kind of stuff. It's just interesting how we do certain things in art. I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if I like this picture or not. I, to me, it doesn't do justice. When I, when I look at that, I don't, if I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know. I don't know if that captures it. But it's one of the best ones I found out there. There's not a lot of good ones of, of this visual uh, that artists have painted. But what, what do you think Jesus looked like in that fiery furnace? See, the cool thing is, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they get thrown in there. And I don't know, you know, they're stumbling in. Or the, the ropes burn off, they stand up, and Jesus is standing there. There's the, the new song we've been singing the last couple months, There Is Another in the Fire. I sing that song all the time. That's, that's my favorite song right now. I love that song. There's, a, there's another in the water. I love that. that. That you're not there by yourself, but Jesus is with you. He's right there with you through all this stuff doesn't matter what it is. He's with you. I wonder what Jesus looked like, really looked like at that particular moment. We know he, he looked different than the three Hebrew children because Nebuchadnezzar noticed this. He noticed that he was God. Revelation chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 12. <clears throat> John is obviously writing this, speaking this. He says, When I turned to see the, who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Now again, he's automatically recognizing that this is, this is different. Now I, I enjoy the fact that John is using the term Son of Man. He could have used a lot of terms here. He could have said um, Son of God. He could have said Jesus, although he recognizes, that it's, he recognizes that it's Jesus. He doesn't immediately say that this is Jesus because of the way that he's writing this and unfolding this, he doesn't want to use the term, in my opinion, he doesn't want to use the term Jesus here because that, the, the, the word that he would use for Jesus would be the name that Jesus had while he was on this earth. And, and, and what, he, what John is seeing transcends that. It, it's, the same, it's the same Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but when you use the term Jesus or Son of God, it, it, it's kind of locking it in. And so he uses a lot of different terms through this, but he doesn't use the, the, the Hebrew term Jesus. I mean, that's our alliteration of that, but you understand. And so he, he says that he was someone like the Son of Man. He, he doesn't say, I saw Jesus, I saw the Son of Man. He said it, it was someone like the Son of Man. To me, that's the same kind of verbiage that, uh, J that John uses when he's describing when Jesus got baptized. And, uh, and I do believe that John is the best person, you know, of course I'm confirming what God thinks, but John is the best person to have written both books, Revelation and John, because of his personality, his description, his, his emotive process and writing. But he, he, when, he, when he describes Jesus being baptized, it says that the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove Came and, you know, settled around his head, that kind of thing. All right, I, I've said this before, and if, I hope you don't think this is heresy. I don't think it was a bird 
I don't think it was a dove. It could have been. It's not, it's not a big enough thing for me to like debate over, argue over. It could have been. But I think what John was doing in, in John 3 is the same thing he's doing here in Revelation. One is he's describing something that he uses the best terminology he can use to describe something that's way bigger than what he can understand and have language to use. I think the Holy Spirit came down in something that was flying around and looking you know, ethereal, spiritual, that kind of thing, flying around the head of Jesus. But I don't think it was a bird. I think it, that was the best, it kind of looked like a dove. It's kind of white. But, but do you really think the Holy Spirit came down, sat on Jesus, sort of, I mean, do you really think, I guess that's a pigeon. I don't know. I don't know what sound dove makes. So you understand what I'm saying. I think John is trying to describe something here. So look at what he says. And I standing in the middle of the lampstands was somebody like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were, were white like wool, as white as snow. Now here's the question. If I don't read anything else, if we just stop right there, it would be uh, fair to say that he's just got white hair and a white beard, right? Okay. But then the next sentence tells me that maybe what John is describing when he's describing his hair is he's just saying it's like white. He, he's not saying it's old man white hair. He's just saying it's like glowing white hair. Because look at the next sentence. And his eyes were like flames of fire. So here's the question. Were, were like flames, like a fireplace, were flames coming out of his eyes? I mean, think about what I'm saying. I'm not... I'm not trying to be clever here. I'm trying to say, I think what John is doing is he's using words to describe stuff that you can't describe. And he's trying to say something that's bigger than what he has the ability to say. And so he sees Jesus standing there and he says, okay, he's his, his, his got like white hair. That didn't mean he had like gray hair. Okay, you understand what I'm saying, I, I hope. And then he says, and his eyes were like flames of fire. I mean, that could, that could be way bigger than what we're looking at. The fact that when he says that, that is, there, is there the possibility that John is saying when he's looking at me, it's like burning into my spirit? And I don't think he's just speaking metaphorically. I believe his eyes were like flames of fire, but not flames of fire. Okay. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. What is that about? See, when you put it all together... He's trying to say that Jesus is so much bigger than humanness at this moment. That he's shining, he's glowing, he's bright. His eyes are on fire. Everything is, is, is brilliant beyond what I have the ability to describe. And so I'm going to do the best I can. Even his feet, his feet are even shining. He's so bright. You see what I'm saying? He's describing, and, and this is the cool thing. And you'll, as we go through, I'll try to say this a few times. He's describing the Jesus that we serve right now. He's describing the Jesus that when you pray and you ask Jesus to take care of something going on at work, this is the Jesus you're praying to. This is the Jesus that you're talking to. When you're saying, Jesus, my finances are a little tight and we're struggling to pay the bills, you're talking to a Jesus that transcends anything that we could describe on this earth. And that's the Jesus that we're serving. Sometimes I think what we do is we limit Jesus 
to when he was in the physical body. But Jesus limited himself to do that. He limited himself to be in that physical body. He was still God, but except for the Mount of Transfiguration, you didn't get to see that shining through. One moment. But we're seeing this, and John is describing this. Isn't it cool that he's also the guy on, on the, the mountain that gets to see all of this? I, I just think it's cool that he's connected with all this. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Wouldn't you like to hear the, the Lord's voice thunder? You know, I, I, um, <clears throat> I played bass guitar all my life. Um, <clears throat> I, was in a, I was in a rock band back in college, I got to tell you. But uh, uh, I, had this, I had this bass amp that was about this high, about this wide. And I would stand in front of it during the concerts. I would, and I'm using the term concert loosely. But during the concerts, I would stand in front of that, and I knew that it was set where it needed to be when my pants were doing like that. When I was playing, you know, and they're, they're moving. And that's not even close to the voice of the Lord. I think we're kind of getting closer in Hollywood with, with Dolby and all this other stuff that's going on. But you understand, that's not even close to the roar and the rumble of the Lord's voice. And here's something just to process. I think there's a possibility that when the Lord speaks like that, the entire earth hears it at the same time. He's big. He's big. And he's, and he's describing this, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. Now, Scripture tells us, I, I don't believe this is metaphor here, Scripture tells us that in the Old Testament that he holds the stars in the sky. The stars are suns for planets. Potentially, some stars are planets. But they're suns that are burning. And he's holding seven of them in his hand just like this. Seven of them. And I don't think they're just little ones. I think, I think John is seeing something that's transcendent here. He's holding the stars that we look at in the sky. He's holding seven of them. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Now again, John's got to be, I don't think Excalibur was sticking out of his face. I, I think he's describing something the best way that he knows how. That when Jesus spoke, the mighty roar of the ocean sound when he spoke, that, that you, could, you could see what he was saying. That you could see this. And I think I can, I can prove that in just a little bit with our prayers, but you can see where when we speak, we don't, there's not something visual that you can see. You hear it, you understand it. Um, it has meaning or context to it, but it's not something you can see. But when Jesus spoke, you could see it. And why does he use the term sword coming out? Because Jesus is the word and the word is a, is a sharp two-edged sword. And the sword, Jesus speaking, is something that apparently John could see happening. And, he, and he's describing it the best that he can. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I always think about this in that, in that when, I, when I read this in different places in Scripture where it says this. They see Jesus and it says they fell at his feet like dead. And I always think to myself, yeah, duh. That, shouldn't that be 
The response, see, see, when Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, you understand that's everybody. That doesn't mean just people that believe in Jesus or just people that like Jesus or just people that have served Jesus. We step into eternity and immediately everyone knows that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And every ruler that's ever lived, every congressman and senator right now in our country, president of the United States, will bow before Jesus Christ. Everyone will. Because why? They like him? That's not the reason. It's because he is so holy. He is so powerful. He is so majestic that you can't stand on your feet. Your legs won't keep you up. You will bow before the king. And so when we see this, we see this, Isaiah does this. We see this, different people in Old Testament, New Testament. But John says that he fell at his feet as if he were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I I find it interesting that any time in the Old Testament, any time after the cross, after the resurrection in the New Testament, where the Lord reveals himself to people, he always has to say, don't be afraid. Why? Because they're going to be afraid. That's why. That's that's an afraid moment. When the, the transcendent king steps in front of you. Now, he's having to limit himself quite a bit. He can't reveal himself in all of his glory because Scripture says it would kill us. So he limits himself and he steps into your presence. That's still pretty big. And he says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look. That's important, he says, but look. I'm alive forever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. And so I believe that when, when, when he said, and look, I'm alive and I have the keys. I believe John saw those two things in a very real way. One is he could see Jesus standing there alive, so he knew that. But the second is at some level, Jesus has got keys with him. Okay? Now we understand that these ha- there has to be some kind of spiritual metaphor Jesus is doing to actually have something that would be recognized as a key because I don't think there's a key key for death. Okay? Could be. Maybe Jesus does it that way. But but this is one of the things that gets me is Jesus is standing before John and he says, look, I have the keys. See, this is something that, that um, there are actually people that believe. I always thought this was like a joke. You know, the joke is Peter is standing at the gates of heaven and somebody comes up. That's how the joke starts, right? There are people that believe that theologically, specifically into Catholicism, some mainline. There are people that believe that when Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, that he literally m- meant that he was going to build it on Peter. And he wasn't building it on Peter. He was building it on what Peter said, which is, Jesus, you're God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on that. Not on Peter, but on what Peter said. And then he says, and Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you the understanding. I'm going to give you the keys to this kingdom. And it's all going to be about when you recognize and you see who I am. I'm going to give you access. I'm going to give you the keys to this. And there's people that still believe that Peter's standing at the gate with a key. And you got to walk up, and Peter's like, come on in, you know, and then he locks it back after you're done. It's weird how we come up with some of this stuff. Jesus says, I'm holding the keys. I've got them right now. And John sees this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4, then I begin to weep bitterly. This is the, the seals are opened. I mean, the, the scrolls are brought up. They're all sealed up. And these, it's important that these seals be open and nobody can be found to open the seals. They're asking around all of, all of creation. Nobody can open the seals. And he says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. 
He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. I love this. One of the elders, you knew the 24 elders are. The first 12 were the, uh, the tribes of Israel, the 12 brothers, and the second 12 were the, the 12 disciples. And so these 24 elders are sitting there. And the, you know, they, right after this, right, right, and just in a few scriptures after this, is when they take their crowns and throw them down at the feet of Jesus. Man, that's an amazing, cool thing. This is one of the things that's always got me about this. Jesus dies on the cross to give us access to God, give us a relationship back with God, and then gives us eternal life for it, and then gives us a crown. Just, just the eternal life is enough. And then he gives, well, here, let me say that differently. He gives the 24 elders a crown. This is something I, I heard all my life growing up, is that when you do good things, you get another crown and you get another jewel in your crown. People hear that? Show me that in the Bible. Show me that, where you do a good thing and you get an extra crown. I mean, you get an extra jewel in your crown. If for some reason we do get more jewels or we have crowns or whatever, it talks about the 24 elders. It doesn't say the same thing about all of us. Maybe it applies. I don't know if it does. I don't actually think it does. But if for some reason I do get a crown, and if for some reason there are extra jewels in my crown because I did good things, really? I'm taking that crown off and throwing it down at the feet of Jesus too. The only reason that I would want a crown is so that I could have something to throw down at the foot of Jesus. And the 24 elders are all standing there, and one of them says to John, John, you know who that is? Now look, this is very important because in just these two sentences right here, three sentences, we see a, a, an amazing thing woven together that tells us a lot about Jesus, about ourselves, about all this stuff. stuff. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne. Verse 6 says, John says, then I saw. So John turns and looks up at Jesus. Now in his brain, he has a picture because the, the elder says to John, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So in, in John's mind, he has a lion visually. But when he looks at Jesus, he sees a lamb. That's pretty big. There's a lot of times when I, I need Jesus to be the lion. I want him to be the lion. But when I look at him, it's amazing how often I see the lamb. Because I need forgiveness more than I need anything else. I need that blood to cover me. And he says, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders, he's standing there in the middle of them. And, and, and the elder, I don't, I don't know if they're just describing different parts. See, this goes back to the intimacy part where I think Jesus reveals himself to you the way you need to see him at that moment. And it's unique to you. The elder says, look at the lamb. John looks, I mean, looks at the lion. John looks at him and it's a lamb. Standing right there in the middle of him. And then he describes even the next part of this. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. That'd be a, you, want, you want to Google something fun is, is um, look at that in relationship to the, the continents and those kind of things. Look, look at how the, the, the sevenfold spirit of God covers and all that. That's too much for, to say to this morning. But. So he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. You know why Jesus had the right to take the scroll, not only because he was sin-free and that he was God, he's the one who made the scroll. He wrote the story 
put it in the scroll. It's the same thing I talked about last week. When he unrolled to Isaiah and read that about himself, it's because he wrote it about himself. And he reaches and takes the scroll. He's the only one worthy. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And we, you don't understand, we're not going to be standing in that circle. That's just for those guys. We're standing right outside that circle and we're watching this. He takes the scroll. Everybody falls, puts their, puts, sees all this un, uh, unfolding. Each one had a harp. I like that. Because that means music was right on the edge. Right? It, I, I come from a very musical family. Uh, it's what we did all my life. Anytime we were sitting around, a family got around pretty soon, somebody was playing the guitar, and pretty soon the whole band was playing. I don't know where these instruments came from, but every time we turned around, I, I, I'm talking I was a little kid. Instruments we all played. We kind of have the same thing at our house. You, no matter, you can go almost anywhere in our house, and there are going to be guitars, there going to be things like that. And they are meant to be played. They are meant to be played. I was thinking about this the other day because I remember when I was a kid, I'd play my grandfather's guitar every now and then. I now have that guitar. It is a, you can look this up. For some of you that are bored right now, you can Google this. Uh, it's about a 1962, it's, it's in the 60s, but it's a Gretsch Chet Atkins signature solid body. Those were mostly open body. This guitar costs more than my Jeep. Well, it costs more like seven of my Jeeps, okay. But uh, this is, and I used to, remember as a kid, I used to play that guitar. What was my grandfather thinking? See, these guys had a harp with them, or what I like to call an axe. And they were ready to shred at a drop of a... Okay, so each one had a harp. And look at this. This is important because I, I mentioned earlier that when Jesus spoke, John said that swords were coming out of his mouth. That means that when Jesus spoke, John could see something happening when he spoke. Not just hear, not just understand, not just connect it, but he could see something happening when he came... When he spoke, look at this. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. They were holding bowls that had your prayers in that bowl. In the bowl. In other words, they were something that could be seen. John could see them. The, 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 the elders could see them. The, 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 uh, Jesus could see those prayers in that bowl. Now, why is that important? This, this was a, a, a revelation I had years ago about this scripture and a few others with this. Sometimes we say things like, my prayers are hitting the ceiling, right? But that's not scripturally true. They can't. They're real, tangible things that are immediately in the presence of God and can be seen. We can't see them. I can't see my prayers as they, as they leave my mouth. But Jesus can they're real things. That's why we got to take prayer seriously. They're real things, and they're really doing stuff, and they're really going to the presence of God instantaneously, and they can be seen. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. How does John know his name is Faithful and True? Okay, I talked about this um, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And, and I, think this is, I think this is important in under, in, in for us and understanding the big picture, but I think it's very important for us. I, I mentioned the fact that when we get to the, 
to the uh, judgment, uh, to the judgment, we're standing before God at judgment, that God opens the books. And one of the books is the Lamb's Book of Life. And when he opens that book, he, if, if our name is in that book, then we have access into eternity with God, which means we've been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's going to read our name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, well, Scripture also tells us that he gives us a new name. And it says, you know, the old song is it's written down in glory. But it's written, it's written in that book. So when he opens the Lamb's Book of Life and he reads our name, I don't believe for me he's going to read the name Scott. I believe he's going to read the name that he has given me. And that name is not just a title or a moniker like Scott would be for me. But, and this, this, this is all precursed from Scripture. We see where the names of people in Scripture were very important to the story. It wasn't coincidence or accident. And, and, and specifically, when God changed somebody's name in Scripture, He changed who they were. He changed their being. He didn't change just a name for them. And so they, they became what he had planned for them, and that was the, the name that he gave them. And I believe when we step into eternity, it's the same way. That when he reads my name, it's going to be more than just, everybody goes, oh, that's him. When he reads my name, it's not a, it's not a descriptor, it's who I am. It's an essence of me, in a, in a very real sense. And I don't even know how to explain what I think the Holy Spirit has put in my spirit about this. But when he reads my name, every one of you are going to know me. Deep, totally, completely. You're going to know me because of my name. So when Jesus steps into this scene right here, he immediately John recognizes part of his name, but only part. And he says, its writer was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, again with this. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, many crowns. And I, I like to think many, many crowns, M-A-N-Y-M-I-N-I, many, many crowns, because he's the king of all kings. And so every other king that's ever existed, how many crowns were on his head? That many of every king that's ever existed, every ruler that's ever existed. And he takes a tiny little crown to represent that ruler, and he sets it inside his big crown, because he's the king of every king. He's the ruler of every nation. He's the ruler of all rulers. And his head is covered with these crowns. And his name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And this is what I tried to explain a few weeks ago. The reason I think that it says it that way is because the fullness of who Jesus is will never be totally understand, understood by us. Ever. I'm saying even after we're in eternity in heaven, we will never totally understand the fullness of Jesus because he's too big. And so John recognizes part of him, faithful and true. And we get other ones like the Word. And we get other ones like the Messiah. All these different elements, small parts of who He is. But His name, when He says my name at the judgment, everybody will know me completely because of what the name that He's given me. It is me. But we'll never know Him completely. That's why we'll never totally understand His name. He's too big. He's too majestic. He's too whatever. He can't be encapsulated like that. But parts of it jump out at us right here. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. Don't you want to be in that army? By the way, I don't necessarily know how you get into that army, but I don't think it's us. I don't have a lot to base that on, but I don't think it's human beings that are the army. I think it's other creations, angels, other things. 
but they get to ride in on white horses. And I, I, if there's a way to join that army, I want to be there. I want to be on one of them white horses. Man, more than I can say, I want to be there. From his mouth came a sharp sword. Again, the visualization of this, John is seeing something that's very, apparently something he can see. And he says, out of his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Why is that important for us? Look at this. You have, you have the, the opportunity. You, see, we limit. How, how we serve Jesus is so limited by how we see Jesus. We, we squeeze Jesus into some kind of small, tiny little something. And we say, that's the Jesus I'm going to serve. But the problem is, is then when we deal with issues, when we come across situations in our life, sickness, disease, or, or a, a, a relationship failure, or financial ruin, or whatever the case is, the Jesus that we've squeezed down into some kind of tiny little manageable God that we can serve comfortably can't handle those issues. The Jesus that we squeeze down doesn't have the power to do the stuff of our life because we don't think that way, we don't process that way, we're not even going to ask Him half the time. But the Jesus that we're seeing in Scripture is huge. And when the Word comes out of His mouth, it strikes down nations. Don't you think He can take care of your workplace? He can strike down nations with his voice. He can create solar systems with a word. All we have to do is let the Lord expand our horizons. And I really do believe the reason Jesus doesn't do more stuff is because of us. It's not because of him. It's because of our limited thinking, our lack of faith, our, our squeezing him down, minimalizing him. And sin, sin gets into our minds, gets into our spirits, gets into our hearts. You say, well, I'm not necessarily out there sinning. Everything that comes across TV, movies, life, family, everything, everything is inundating us in today's society with sin, sin, sin. We've got to push that stuff back, push it back, and broaden our horizons and see Jesus as the king. And when he speaks, countries are changed. Entire nations are changed. When he speaks, everything is different. Everything. We got to see that. We got to know it. We got to get it into our spirit. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Do you see this is a Trinitarian scripture here? It shows the separateness and the togetherness at the same time. He says, He will release. Jesus will release by His speaking. He will release the fierce wrath of God. It doesn't say He's asking God to release His wrath, it says that when He speaks, God releases His wrath. That through his speaking, that means they're separate because we do see where God and Jesus are mentioned together, but separately. But we also realize that when they're doing it, they're doing it in unison. Jesus is speaking the release of God's wrath. It's happening at the same time. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. That's who we serve. That's who we serve. The king of everything. The king of this planet, the king of this city, the king of hopefully our hearts. That's the Jesus we serve. Revelation chapter 7. You guys that are going to do communion, why don't you go ahead and do that? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This should be the response, always should be the response. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation 
and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Look, listen to that again. From every, you, you understand when John sees this, he's, he's over in the Middle East. I mean, he's on the Alapamas, but he's in the Middle East, right? He's talking about us. He's saying from every place on the planet, even way over there in that other place I don't even know the name of yet. Right? And we're all there together. They were clothed with white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. That's us. You know that, right? That's us. And they were shouting with a great roar. Someday, someday we're going to be standing and this is going to happen. With a great roar, we and everybody shouts, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. He could have said anything. We could be shouting anything at that moment, but what are we shouting? Our salvation comes from this right here. Our salvation comes from this Messiah, from this Lamb. We have this gift that He's given us to serve Him, to serve the King, to serve the ruler of, of literally everything. We have this opportunity. Now, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And... Um, I'm going to read down through this in just a second. Then we're going to pray and, and do this together. But I was thinking about this in, in finishing this series and, and taking communion together. I was thinking about this. Jesus says, when you do this, to remember him. And obviously, we've, we've kind of limited it down to this. But, but he says, when you do this, remember him. But there's a propheticness about this that says you're remembering something that he did in Exodus that he finalized in the Gospels, but that is he's going to complete in eternity. It's not a moment in time that we're talking about. And this is where sometimes Judaism kind of squeezes it down and backs it up and just locks it in in Exodus. But Jesus said it 3,500 years later. And he says, every time you do this, going in the future, every time you do this, remember that this is about me and I'm coming. That's, that's, that's amazing that Jesus can do something like that. We can't do it. We don't have the ability to do that. But he can transcend this time, this, this space thing that we've got going on. And so we're going to take this together, and, and we're going to do two things with this. One is, and I, I do, this, do this every time I ever take communion, I always ask Jesus to forgive me. He talks about this. I'm not going to read all the way down, but later, a few sentences after where I'm going to stop this this morning in 1 Corinthians. He talks about don't take communion unworthily. In fact, what he says is if you do this, and this isn't just maybe or that's old time speak or whatever. This is true. It's true right now today. You take communion unworthily and you can get sick and even die. It says that. And I know major chunks of the church in today's society that doesn't think that that's still a real thing. But scripture is always true and will always be real. The reason that that's a possibility is because when we're playing around with something like the reality of Jesus' blood and forgiveness, we're accountable to it. And if we're playing around with it, it opens the door for Satan to manipulate us in that exact arena. 
So the reason that you can get sick and die when you take communion uh, improperly is because you're literally saying, Jesus, I believe your body was broken for my healing. But I'm just playing. I don't really mean it. It's a joke to me. And Satan says, okay, thanks for opening that spiritual door. That's how I'm going to mess with you is physically. It's exactly what he did. What's going on here? Okay? I'm not saying this to scare us. I'm just saying this is something you should think about. This is something that's real. He says that when you, when you do this, you remember that I am the everything for you. I am the salvation. I am the forgiveness. I am the blood. I am the everything. And we're going to do this together. We're going we're gonna to do the, the first thing is we're going to pray for forgiveness. That's what I always, I always do since I was a little kid. I still, I always pray, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Wash me clean. I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to ever take that for granted. Just because somebody came up with a theology that I'm saved no matter what I do, I'm not buying into it. I want to always come back to Jesus in repentance. Always come back. The second thing that, that I want us to do, and we're going to close in a minute with this side of the prayer, is that we pray, Lord, open my eyes. I just want to see you bigger. I just want to see you. I want, to, I want, to, I want your blood to flow over my brain so that I see you bigger. Because if you can see him bigger, you'll serve him. I believe you'll serve him better. You'll, you'll want that intimacy. You'll want that closeness. So let me read this. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. That's prophetic. That's prophetic. We are all about to do something that scripture just says is prophetic. All right? Lord, we submit and surrender ourselves to you. Lord Jesus, you took, you took all of the stuff of the cross so we could have a relationship with you. So Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me clean. Lord, all the junk that, that I, I hide, all the junk that I hide in my mind and my spirit, all the junk I even hide from myself, Lord, forgive me. Wash me. Lord, you said in your word that the stripes you took at, at, at coming up to Calvary and on the cross the cutting, the beating that you took was so that I could be physically healed. Jesus, I don't, I don't think that's metaphor. I think you meant it. I think you meant it for every one of us right now. So Lord, as we take this, this bread together, I ask you to open our, our spiritual eyes, open our faith, that we could believe that you could heal right now, that you want to heal right now, that that is what you do. And Lord, I pray that even while we're taking this communion together, that physical things all over this room will be healed. You've said it. It's your word. It's truth. And Lord, we just stand on it and believe it. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. Jesus, thank you for healing. Mental healing, emotional healing, physical healing. We thank you for healing. Help us to embrace it by faith and to realize it's part, it's part of the message. 
Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your blood. Jesus, when you wrote this story so long ago, when you were walking through the garden with Adam and Eve, you knew that, that thousands of years later it was going to take your death to bring them back. Lord, we are completely indebted to you for this. Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for forgiveness. Let's take the drink together. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as Lord, as we can as we can still taste this in our mouth. Jesus, you use this moment, use this mental, this, this physiological moment to spiritually open our eyes. Jesus, we believe we just did something here that's prophetic that declares that you're the king, that you're the risen one, that you're the lamb that was slain. Jesus, help, help us to open our spiritual eyes to see you bigger, to see you like John saw you. Lord, we're jealous of that. We want those moments. We want to see you. pray that every one of us in here that even this week that you'll show yourself, you'll reveal yourself and Lord I believe the more that that happens, the more we see you bigger Lord that, we will, that we'll tell people I just believe that that happens we've got to tell people it becomes a fire shut up in our bones so fill us with you your presence Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And God bless my new little grandbaby. In Jesus' name. Before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Use Thanksgiving. When somebody says, how did your Thanksgiving go? Bring it to Jesus somehow. Somehow. Bring it around to Jesus. You ought to honor that in your life. It's a guarantee. So shake everybody's hand. Tell them how glad you are that they are here. And uh, we will see you Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your afternoon.